In December 2018, when I joined Sarah Demio's Faded Out, I got sucked in fast. I devoured everything I could read on Doreen, on the Charlie Project, in newspaper articles, on Reddit, and on web sleuths. There wasn't much to be had, and the sheer lack of details drove me nuts. The bizarre details drove me nuts even more. Doreen ran away in the farmlands of Wallingford and was never seen again. Her father didn't report it until he was forced to three days later. He burned her diary. He was seen in the dead of night carrying something out of a truck that looked like a kid and running into Huntington State Park. My obsession with this case came early. I couldn't stop talking about it. Sometimes Joe had to beg to plead for me to stop, just so we could have a little peace. Back then, it was even more confounding that it felt like no one but Joe and Sarah were listening. But Ellen was listening. Ellen, a friend of mine and another lawyer, listened to me go on and on about Doreen early and often. Ellen is whip-smart, knows her shit, and is a little aggressive, especially when she knows what she wants. And she always does. So after one of these marathon sessions, Ellen, one of the original Sticky Beaks, asked me this question. So we know Doreen is dead, and we're pretty sure we know who did it. So why would anyone want to listen to this podcast? The answer was easy. Ellen, I said, you've been dumbstruck and breathless for almost an hour. You've asked me a million questions. You're obsessed. If you're listening to me right now, you know what I mean. Because hearing the tragic, baffling, infuriating story unfold, I know you want to scream. And in telling that story, I am fighting on two fronts. Here in 2020, I speak every day with people close to this story, people who it affects personally, and I'm still battling it out with the Wallingford PD at the Freedom of Information Commission. But to tell this story the way it deserves to be told, I often need to go back, to steep myself in 1988 and 1989. So here, for once, thank God for the Record Journal, because every six months or so, our local paper publishes a retrospective of photos from a certain time and place. On July 16, 2018, it asked readers to take a look back at the late spring and entire summer of 1988 Wallingford. Talk about a strange time capsule. The photos are all published in black and white, appearing to spring from the far distant past. Sometimes they double down on that effect, like the one from May 27, 1988, depicting an almost rural Route 5 with a small parade of vehicles, one of them a vintage Volkswagen Bug. It's striking to see that road so undeveloped, especially given that here in the present, they just raised Don Giovanni's Bistro for more storage for quality Subaru. Another shot shows electrician Joseph Cummings doing some wiring on the town's trash plant's computer system. It's a computer the size of a room, a monster of a machine. Someone dressed as Rex the Tiger, the Wallingford Recreation Department's new mascot, entertains children at the Penny Carnival at Community Lake. There are a lot of school graduations, capturing a distinct moment in their subjects' lives. June 11, 1988. Pond Hill Elementary students launched balloons commemorating the school's 20th anniversary. About 20 years later, when Joe and I lived in Wallingford, our older two kids were Pond Hill kids. June 20th, 1988. At the Sheehan High School graduation, Mayor William Dickinson is there, grinning. God, he looks so young. One woman is surprisingly not grinning as she raises a giant bunch of balloons over her head. 
One student wears his pride in his hair, with the number 88 shaved on. At the Lyman Hall graduation on June 17, 1988, one boy sprays a friend with champagne and caps fly in the air. How some of those girls got those caps over their classic 1988 aquanetted hair is still a mystery of science. One kid, making the hang 10 sign, looks exactly like Jeff Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Wherever he is now, I hope he's enjoying some tasty waves and a cool buzz. A lot of these pictures could have been taken in any year, and they're lovely in how common they are. Lots of boys on skateboards. A mom lounges with her son under a beach umbrella on her South Main Street lawn. A six-year-old boy sticks his foot into the water shooting from a sprinkler to test out the temperature. A two-year-old named Evan helps his older brother, Brandon, scrape paint from their grandmother's porch on North Whittlesey Avenue. Both boys are barefoot and wear swim trunks, and man, are they intense. The photos of the girls are harder to look at. Four-year-old Korea turns to her mother for another push on a horse swing at Wallace Park. The horse takes me right back. It looks like it's made of iron and like it gets hot in the sun. You know it squeaks. Another four-year-old named Justine wades through the water of a Doolittle Park Creek, armed with a bucket and a net, trying to catch a fish. But the one that stops me cold is of a little girl named Michelle. The caption reads, The lake at Whartonbrook Park officially opened Memorial Day but the crowds have yet to flock to the beach. Michelle, six, was among only a handful of beachgoers on June 10, 1988. Another photo features Michelle splashing with another little girl, maybe a sister, maybe a friend. Also captioned June 10th, just days after Doreen arrived in town, this one reads, two young girls brave the unseasonably cool summer weather to take a dip at Whartonbrook. Looking at these, it helps me to find a bit of levity in a shot of sisters Rebecca and Rachel, they spent a gloomy morning watching cartoons in the children's section of the Wallingford Public Library. Hey, fun fact, that's where the Wallingford Police Department had to do their internet research until 2014, when Mayor Dickinson finally granted them access to the World Wide Web. Speaking of the Wallingford Police, here's a photo captioned, Wallingford Police Officers Patrick Shanley, Robert Fliss, and Richard Kearns carry the Special Olympics torch down Route 5 on June 24, 1988. Another shot features four men holding up a sign they made for the cops reading, the cops are running for it? One of the men hands the officers a donation as they run by. When I first came across these pictures, I was pissed. How dare they run a charity race and look happy while ignoring a lost little girl. Joe had to remind me that even in the face of tragedy, people's lives go on. They have to work, he told me, and he's right. Life doesn't freeze in place because something awful happens. But I was still angry, because according to what I had already seen, it didn't seem like the men of the Wallingford Police Department were that invested in Doreen back in 1988. Fast forward to late 2018 and early 2019, this frustration was only stoked by the trouble Sarah and I had getting the PD interested in the project, or even returning our phone calls. So I was forced to rely, for a time, on Google. There were Wallingford's finest, participating in another charity event, this time for children's cancer. No Shave November is a wrap now for Wallingford Police. Each member donated a minimum of 50 bucks to the Matthew Hill Foundation to be allowed to grow out their facial hair for the month. Normally, the officers there must be clean-shaven. 
Looking good there with the beard, right? <laughs> All month long, the officers grew out their facial hair, raising awareness for cancer research and education. The department's goal was to raise $3,000, but they raised $5,700 instead. Great job. Way to go, guys. Officers also featured in a lip sync challenge video from November 2018, their entry in an informal contest among other area departments. The video features more than a dozen officers at local businesses and landmarks, including the Oakdale, where I took in many afternoon viewings of Children's Fairy Tale Theater. There is also Neil's Donuts, the Colony Diner, and a nice aerial shot of Gouveia Vineyards, in which I'm almost positive I can see Doreen's old house. For their songs, the officers chose Round Here by Florida Georgia Line, The Show Goes On by Loopy Fiasco, The Fighter by Gym Class Heroes, and Warriors by Imagine Dragons. Round Here is about drinking and listening to the radio and loving a girl, but the others are about power, dominance, and kicking ass. In January 2019, I finally broke through and was able to have a phone call with Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, head of the traffic department. DeMeo was reluctant to share much, if anything, with me, out of fear I could compromise the case. He did want me to know the department had generated boxes upon boxes of paper in looking for Doreen, and that at least 10 other officers had looked at the case over the years. He knew because he was the one who looked back in 2011. As for new information, eight years later, there wasn't anything, he said. He knew because he had Googled it. He joked that I would have to dig around in microfiche if I was really committed. His January 23, 2019 press release to the Faded Out team closely mirrored the interview he gave to the Connecticut Post Chronicle seven years earlier, almost to the day. In a January 16, 2012 article entitled, Missing in Connecticut, Girl 12 Vanished from Father's Wallingford Home in 1988, DeMeo said this to journalist Ann Beattie, We've restructured the whole file. We wanted to make sure Doreen was listed on databases for missing and exploited children and on the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. Partial dental x-rays of Doreen were also entered into national databases last November 15th. As for the January 23, 2019 press release, I've read parts of it before on this podcast. Here's another, quote, At the time of her disappearance, Doreen was a 12-year-old child from a divorce set of parents that had a visitation arrangement. Her father, Mark Vincent, had recently moved to Wallingford from Bridgeport with his wife, Sharon, and their two very young children. This was known to Doreen's mother, Donna Jones, at the time. And because occupancy of the Wallingford residence was recently established, as was the new telephone service, Donna initially did not have their phone number. This led to a lack of communication between Donna and Mark, a delay in reporting Doreen missing, and added to the suspicions surrounding the mystery. That wasn't right, I knew. I had already met with Doreen's mother, Donna, and her aunts, Carol and Debbie. There was so much more to the story. So I pushed, and I got another meeting with Lieutenant DeMeo the day before Valentine's Day, 2019. This was after he told me he had a little tidbit of information no one else knew. He wanted to see what I thought about it, he said, what I could do with it. That night, Lieutenant DeMeo told Sarah and me that back in 2003, Mark had thought he was dying and had had his lawyer contact the Wallingford Police Department to broker a deal. Mark would share information relative to the disappearance of his daughter, and for that, he wanted full immunity. The state's attorney said absolutely not, and the confession was called off at the last minute. I demanded to see records, but DeMeo told me there were none, 
that literally no record of Mark's attempt to somehow come clean were accounted for anywhere in the file. It was almost like the whole thing was urban legend. Lieutenant DeMeo told me not to call Michael Darrington, the state prosecutor at the time, because the man was retired and might not remember the case. So I did what any good Sticky Beak would do. I called the actual state's attorney's office, now under the leadership of Patrick Griffin. They knew nothing, they told me. And later, when I spoke to DeMeo, he was mad that I had shared our little secret. I hope you don't do anything to make me look foolish, DeMeo told me. I've been very nice to you, and if you make me look foolish, I won't speak to you ever again. But I pressed on. Sarah, Joe, and I were not only in contact with Doreen's maternal family, I told DeMeo, but also with Mark Vincent himself. You want, I stressed, to speak to us. My continued refusal to let this go led to another meeting in March 2019 that I attended along with Joe, Chief William Wright, Lieutenant DeMeo, and then Sergeant Jeff Cifarelli, at the time the newest investigator on the case, and as of today the third of five whom I've been told have borne that title. Despite my little dust-up with DeMeo, the meeting was extremely positive. They asked us to share anything and everything we had. I have unanswered questions I'd like to ask Jimmy Farnham, I told them. His words in some places just don't make sense. Cifarelli listened to the audio. Nothing weird there, he said. I told him I had audio of Laura West that contradicted Farnham, and Cifarelli was all ears. He'd have me into the station, he said, so he and his partner Stephen Jakes could listen. Look at Teen Challenge where Mark worked, I stressed. There is something not right there. Cifarelli even let me give him a list of objective questions. He said he would try to help me answer by looking at the file. As a result of that, I learned about Sharon's claim that Mark and Doreen's fight was about magazines, and the fact that there had been glass on the floor of Doreen's bedroom when the police finally searched 1316 in 1989. My relationship with Cifarelli was a good one, even if I did sometimes get frustrated that he would take a lot of time to get back to me. He had things to do, I knew. But in April, as the weather grew warmer, that relationship imploded, and since that date, the Wallingford Police Department has never spoken to me without a lawyer's representation again. I remember another friend, when Joe and I started working with Sarah on Faded Out, asking what we thought we could do for Doreen's case. What more does a group of civilians know, he asked, than the Wallingford PD? Well, I told him, they haven't solved it yet, have they? Looking back now, almost a year and a half later, it's hard to believe that the Wallingford PD and I ever had a working relationship, where I could call them up any time of day and try to convince them to look into things I thought were weird, to try to push this case in some direction. But even back then, Lieutenant DeMeo was pretty unhelpful, insisting there wasn't anything more to do on the case, and that if I did make any breakthroughs, it was because of just one little thing that turned the case on its face, one silly little stone I happened to kick over. It reminded me of what Richard Novia had said to Donna and Debbie in January 1989 when they kicked him off the case. I explained to the client how much everyone had done. Even the police had gone out of their way, Novia wrote in his report. I had not left one rock, as it said, unturned. But that's just not true. So I'm here to call it out. And I want to remind everyone that just like Verazima before me, I am not armed with a vendetta. I'm not here to make people look stupid or engage in a pissing contest or spill the details of people's lives for podcast ratings. No, like Vera... I'm looking for the truth, and only the truth. I'm looking for the murderer. I'm Jessica fritz and this is Sticky Beat. This is episode five, Silly Little Stones. Wow.
I'm Joe Aguirre from Clovercrest Media, executive producer of Sticky Beak. Thank you to the many people who have downloaded the first five episodes. 48 states and 21 countries around the world, including Australia, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Germany, Sweden, Spain, France, the United Arab Emirates, and Trinidad and Tobago. We'd also like to thank Donna and Mark's families for their support in the Sticky Beak Project and to Pierre for sharing the spirit and the music of Georgia Lewis. At the end of this episode, we'll share another of Georgia's many hits. Also, a big thank you to Sarah Dimio, to Ellen, Kerry, and Amanda. We appreciate all the support and donations from Eileen, Mimi, Skip, Jennifer, Deirdre, Kate, Alyssa, Nancy, Jackie, Sandy, Kelly, Tara, and Jessica's Mama Barb. We are working as hard as we can to find justice for Dory, and we invite you to come along. Please visit clovercrestmedia.com backslash stickybeak to subscribe and get all the latest with this podcast, to support it, and to join our Patreon page. And now back to the internationally known podcaster, Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Let's talk briefly about what the police knew back in 1989, when it started to become frighteningly clear that everything Mark and Sharon had told the police hadn't just been swimming in slippery colors. There's a better word for it, and it's bullshit. As a result, the police didn't know where Mark was from November 88 until June of 1989, when 18-year-old Kurt Anderson found Mark barbecuing his mother Roseanne's clothes. Suddenly, finally, the real search for Doreen was on. Despite the fact that Mark had been cooling his heels in California and God knows where else for seven months, a search warrant the police would execute in July 1989 notes the police's belief that Mark had been hiding out in Wallingford the whole time. No forwarding address left with the police department, the search warrant reads. This was despite the police's pleas to Lori, also noted in the warrant, to please have her son call them. Mark would later tell Ann Beattie of the Connecticut Post Chronicle in January 2012, I didn't hide. I lived and worked in Wallingford. I noticed them noticing me. But Roseanne Poloni told police that Mark had been clear. He didn't want anyone to know where he was. When asked why he had made himself so unavailable, especially in light of the fact that his daughter was missing, Mark said he didn't want Sharon calling him. Roseanne told police that Mark was always taking photos which she never saw, and which she was never able to find later when she searched his personal effects. On July 8, 1989, the police showed up at Sharon's door to take a statement. She repeated her claim that Doreen had messed her bedspread up so badly that she needed to throw it away. But she also claimed she had given Donna back the rest of the bed set, purchased for the girl by her grandmother, Jane. That included four curtains, pillows, a cloth bed canopy, the dresser, and the canopy bed itself. When I asked Donna about this detail, about whether Sharon returned Doreen's things, Donna shook her head no. Cher never gave her anything but those directions and that weird warning all the way back in 1991. Where those things ended up is a mystery, at least to me. And where the comforter is, no one knows. When Joe and I met with the police in March 2019, they made a note to check the evidence room to see if they had it, despite my protests. 
That day, July 8, 1989, Sharon made the list for the cops about what Doreen went missing with. Even though the original report and most tips leading from it prominently featured Doreen's Senum jacket, Sharon reported that she had found that jacket in Doreen's closet the day after she went missing. After being in Doreen's room and thinking about it for several days, Sharon wrote, I believe she left with shorts, a top, her purple Reeboks, her denim pocketbook, her telephone address book. She also took some makeup and hairspray. I think she had about $70 in cash, which she had been paid for doing work around the house. When I asked Donna about that detail, Donna shook her head. Doreen never did work around anybody's house, she said. Also, what house? They had been at 1316 for just a few days. As of July 10, 1989, the cops weren't buying Sharon's line anymore, and warrants were issued authorizing a search for Doreen's things in her new house in Danbury on Merrimack Street, but also the home of her brother, Richard, in Newtown. Detectives Thomas Hanley and Bob Fliss showed up to Merrimack and asked Sharon for the items, but she refused. It was only once she was presented with the two warrants that Sharon capitulated, turning over the items Doreen had disappeared in. I have no record that the police ever actually entered her house and performed a formal search, and I'm pretty sure Sharon was just allowed to hand over everything herself. To this day, I don't know if a search of Sharon's brother's house was ever conducted, and he will not return my phone calls. I do know that Sharon later turned over the recorder I've spoken about previously. The recorder I can't find anywhere else in the records. Was there a cassette tape in that recorder? Was the cassette tape blank? Did Sharon keep it so she could erase it? I don't know. I do know because Cifarelli told me. Sharon didn't just turn over those particular items. She took the cops down into her basement and turned over bags and bags of things she had taken from Doreen's room when she herself had left 1316. Trinkets. Magazines. Board games. Has any of that stuff been forensically tested? I asked Cifarelli. No, he said. I don't know why anyone would test a board game. So the cops turned back to Mark. On July 18th, he sat with Thomas Hanley for an interview. At the very beginning of those two pages of transcript that I have, the police tell him, no, we're not giving you those pictures back. These words came for me without context on page 30 of a much longer interview. And at first, I didn't know what Hanley meant. Mark tells the police, I don't have any pictures. I gave them all out. Hanley responds, this is all we have of her. We have made no assumptions at all on this case. All we've done is simply confront you with some discrepancies and some misconceptions that we have. Hanley asked Mark why he told Donna that she still had Stephanie, just like he had his two kids, and that she should get on with her life. Mark was pissed. Wait a second, wait a second, he snaps. I told that to Donna in the sense of, you still have to take care of Stephanie. It wasn't forget about Doreen and go on with your life. It has nothing to do with that. It had to do with Donna having a hard time with Stephanie, and I was trying to be somewhat compassionate and tell her, look, Donna, you still have, you have to take care of Stephanie. That's all that was. Now you can put in, you can insert any, I don't even care. I really don't. I really don't. God, picture those conversations between Donna and Mark in those days. They must have been so raw, at least for her. Lieutenant DeMeo told me in 2019 that Mark had married Sharon quickly after his divorce from Donna, that the two had only been married for a little while before Doreen went missing, and that he thought Donna was jealous of Sharon. Wrong on all counts, I told him. Back on July 18, 1989, the police told Mark he did care. He must. He must have a conscience. Otherwise, they said, he wouldn't be sitting there with them right now. Mark agreed. I care about one thing, he said. I care about my daughter. And yeah, I'm afraid to see her. I'm afraid to see her. 
because of the stories month after month after month, period. I'm afraid to see her. That's right. That's right. I'm hard. I'm hardened right now. I'm very, very hardened. I miss my daughter. I care about her, yes. And I'm afraid to see her at the same time. Yeah, I got a conscience. Okay. But I have to overlook all the hell that I've heard and been through and all of that over her. I have to, because I still have to work. You understand that? I don't know what else Mark said that night, but he was able to leave the police station a free man. Thereafter, on a date the police have fastidiously kept from me, they conducted a consent search of 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road, finding the broken glass from whatever happened between Mark and Dorian still on the floor. One investigator close to the case, and anonymous to you, demanded to speak to Wallingford's initial investigator to demand why he had failed when Doreen was first reported missing to look for her in any meaningful way. I don't remember the guy's name, my source told me. Probably wouldn't recognize him if I bumped into him. It was 31 years ago. The guy was a lazy cop and believed everything Mark said to him without verifying anything. That officer turned up at the house where he was berated. Why, people yelled at him. Why hadn't he done anything more in 1988 to look for Doreen? Because she was a little slut, the officer said. I figured she'd been banging someone and just ran off. And my source pinned him up against the wall by his neck. I told you I have to walk the line between 1988, 1989, and now. Knowing what the cops knew then and what I know now, it's a very frustrating place to be. So let's talk about the first little stone I've been trying to kick over that of 1316 itself. It's a very private, locked-off place, only sold in private sales since George Bronson Farnham bought it all the way back in the 50s. I say with all due respect to the police department that they missed so much here. I wonder if the scorch mark left in the driveway when Mark burned Doreen's books was still there, when Donna reported her daughter missing. The police didn't see it that day because they didn't even come to the house. And while the police tell me cadaver dogs were used in that 1989 consent search, I wonder how far that search extended. Because in the dead leads pile the police recently forked over, I found a report dated April 2, 1989, made after Robert Charles called in something strange on his property. Robert is married to Jimmy Farnham's sister, Nancy, and the two of them own a bed and breakfast on the piece of property just behind 1316 at 1290 Whirlwind Hill Road. On that day, Mr. Charles had been out walking with his friends Charles Park and Rick Camp of, respectively, 1283 and 1285 Whirlwind Hill Road. The men had come across what they thought was a grave in the woods. Charles stated that in the past, students from the Yale Forestry Service had done soil testing on other parts of the property, but that he had not seen anyone from Yale in over a year. As for that portion of his 82-acre property, Charles was adamant that he knew of no one who had been in that part of the woods. Reading this report, I remember Jimmy Farnham telling me a similar story. They dug up this pit. Um, I'm not sure if it was the police or the private investigator that dug up this pit. Uh, we, had a, we had lent our property to a soils class from the Yale Forestry School. So they dug these soil pits to test the soil, and it had the looks of like a shallow grave. So that's why they, it was suspicious. But, um, and, and, but I, I, don't, I don't remember ever talking to the police. The so-called grave was dug up by the police. It was nothing. But it makes me wonder, because 82 acres is a lot, and that's just the part owned by Jimmy Farnham's sister and her husband. When the police say they searched 1316 with cadaver dogs on a consent search, does that include 1290 Whirlwind Hill Road, too? 
And what do the police make of statements from Charles's friends, Park and Camp? Because they told the police that day that Mark was very strange, extremely skittish and bizarre. They said he got freaked out one day when a helicopter was overhead. They always wondered what that was about. The land itself, the land where Doreen was last seen, still maintains some weird hum to it. It calls out to people, beseeching them. That's why we took our tour with Jimmy Piscotti back in February 2019. When you're trying to solve a murder, it helps to connect with the place you think it happened. When Jimmy pointed out his low stone wall and told us that's where he had heard the screaming, we decided to test it. Joe walked up the hill to stand across from 1316 and holler down to us. We could hear it all right. The man who lives at 1316 now could hear it too, and he wasn't happy. He made his way out of his house and tore Joe like he was on fire. Joe retreated to us, and the man retreated to his house. Then in March 2019, Doreen's Aunt Debbie called me to tell me she was taking a ride up there. It would be hard, she said, but she hadn't seen that house in over 30 years. I did what I always do, and I made her take me with her. It was raining when we drove past the property and saw the new owners, a husband and wife, getting into their car. Should we stop, I asked Debbie. Should we just ask? Why not, she said. Despite what had happened with Joe, we did not anticipate the response we would get. I pulled into the front part of the driveway and got out, introducing myself and trying to introduce Debbie. The man was having none of it, and he began screaming at us. I got scared, and I got back into my car, but Debbie was braver. She's a tiny little woman, and she just stood there, trying to tell him about her niece and why she was there. No effect. The man chased us off the property. His face was red and contorted with rage. When I told Cifarelli about the exchange, he had a simple explanation. They probably just wanted to enjoy their Sunday, he told me. But Debbie still wasn't satisfied and wrote the following letter to the homeowners on May 2, 2019. I'm obviously using a fake name. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I was one of the women that attempted to speak with you on Sunday, the 10th of March. When we drove into the driveway, I was already overwhelmed since I have not been to this home for 31 years. I am the aunt of Doreen Vincent, the 12-year-old girl that went missing from the home you live in. I was taken aback by your response to my visit, and I'm unsure why you responded the way that you did. Over the years, we have met the same resistance from the Wallingford community. I cannot understand why the citizens of Wallingford would not be concerned about a missing child or provide any information that would help our family put this to rest. When you shouted, I will call my attorney, my first thought was that you were covering up for someone or were somehow involved. The woman with me was an attorney who was trying to help gather information for the podcaster. At the time, the police took her father's version of what happened with Doreen the night of June 15, 1988. They reported her as a runaway. I believe what happened at that time possibly happened in your home. Our family would like to put this to rest, no matter what the results are or how bad they are. Any cooperation or information you may have would be greatly appreciated. Respectfully, Deborah Pereira. Mrs. Smith did eventually write back to Debbie over a text which Debbie's phone has deleted. She told Doreen's aunt that at first she had promised herself not to speak to any of us because what we represented was too awful to think about and tarnished the peace and beauty and solitude she had found in 1316. Her fear and anger had convinced her husband, Mrs. Smith said, to circle the wagons and protect his wife and his home. She would try to convince him to speak to us, Mrs. Smith said, because what Debbie said was moving. Mrs. Smith said she would get back to Debbie. To this day, she never has. I want to stress 
that I bear the Smiths no ill will and in no way mean to suggest that they have anything to do with Doreen's disappearance. But up in those hills, the confrontation echoed on. On my birthday, June 12, 2019, I took the day off from work, dropped off my FOIA complaint, and headed up to Gouveia Vineyards to write. Noticing my laptop, the bartender asked me what I was working on, and I told her. I don't think she fully realized who I was, because she leaned in and whispered, Followers of that podcast have been trying to storm the property. They've been trying to break in. I repeated who I was and told her no one was storming 1316. Not on my watch, I said. Three days later, on June 15th, Sarah Demio and I hosted about three dozen people at Gouveia to talk about the case and to honor the 31st anniversary of Doreen's disappearance. Doreen's Aunt Debbie was there. Friends of mine from Choke came and my sister and brother-in-law, but the attendees were mostly strangers. People from the community who had listened to Faded Out and just could not believe what they were hearing. Paul Vincent, Doreen's brother, was there too. I had started talking to Paul in the early spring after Teresa Lyon contacted him and told him to listen to the podcast. My conversations with Paul are off the record, but I can tell you what happened when I was with him. As the date of the Gouveia gathering had drawn nearer, Paul told me he wished he could go, but he didn't have enough money, he said, for a second day's worth of rental car to take him from Ohio, where he had grown up with Sharon and Sarah, to Connecticut, to see us, before his ultimate stop in Florida. I'll pay for it, I said. You have to come. So Paul made his way to Gouveia and met Debbie and me at the door, where he gifted Debbie with about two dozen photos of Doreen, many of which I have shared online. I was just so glad to have Paul there. The police had been telling me for months that they hadn't spoken to Paul and Sarah and didn't need to. The two were just babies, the police said, when their sister disappeared. But they might know something, I kept needling them. Their parents were Mark and Sharon. Who could say there hadn't been a fight, the kind of fight where accusations are hurled and things left unsaid for years had been screamed. As a kid, I remember those types of fights between my parents. And even if those accusations were whispered and the things not said for years were hissed, I had heard all of them because I was listening at the door. Teresa Lyon understands. I think he was frustrated at the fact that he couldn't have been, like, he was like zero help. You know what I'm saying? Because he was so young, he couldn't remember. You know, he, he's bragging that he has this awesome memory. But by that time, the police and I weren't speaking, or at least they weren't speaking to me. And even though I know Lauren Tacoris of the Record Journal spoke to Paul that day, there is nothing about him in her write-up of the event in late June. She certainly missed it when the event ended, and Debbie and I started to head to lunch at Gaetano's in the center of town. We were supposed to go with Paul, but we couldn't find him. We wouldn't know where he had been until we pulled up the winery's little road to the street, where we would find five cop cars and a bevy of officers. What the hell is this? Debbie asked. Doreen never even had one cop car the day she went missing. Not one. We had cars stationed out here at the homeowner's request to protect the house, the officers told us. More cops had arrived, we learned, when a strange male figure approached the original officers. Wearing thick work gloves, a hooded sweatshirt, and a mask in the style of Anonymous, the figure had been on the Gouveia side of the road, taking photos of the house. When the officers demanded to know what he was doing, the figure told them, I am here to represent the spirit of Doreen Vincent, a little girl no longer here to speak for herself. But the police couldn't hear him because of the mask, so they demanded he take it off. But the figure refused. They went back and forth and back and forth on this subject, 
in a surreal version of who's on first, and the figure eventually wandered back down the hill to his rental car, which he took to meet us for lunch. Paul Vincent had to eat quickly because he had to get on the road to Florida. I already knew where he was going. Florida, I had joked with him when he first told me. Gonna move in with Auntie Teresa Lyon? As a matter of fact, he said. Funny story, he said. So Paul took $40 in gas money from me and 60 from Sarah and headed to Florida to see Auntie Teresa. It did not go well. During their brief time together, the two would text me about how they were fighting with each other. Shortly thereafter, Paul deactivated his Facebook account and left Florida for Vermont. Teen Challenge Vermont, to be specific. Mark got me in, Paul wrote me. Gonna get some structure and avoid the brainwashing. Good luck with that, I wrote. Please keep yourself protected. Thanks, Paul responded. Too woke to be brainwashed. I don't know what to say to him. I don't know. I think he's like a, a double-edged sword. Where he, he doesn't... He doesn't know what side. You know what I'm saying? He, he doesn't have his independence. To, you know, it's either going to be with you or he's going to be with me. Or, you know, there's no middle. You know what I'm saying? Well, I think he's so, scared of Mark, to be quite honest. I heard him on the phone talking to him, and I did not hear any fear whatsoever. Really? Uh-uh. No. Do you think he's no. like his dad? Oh, yeah. I, I saw the manipulation shit. No, I saw that um, you're going to do what I say attitude shit, okay? Okay. Well, I like to, like, pat myself on the back after 60 years, look, tell him to go fuck themselves pretty much. So that's yeah. what he got that day when he wanted me to take him to the library. And this was after I have been taken into the banks and driving him to work. He's called. I'm on my lunch. I want to I, I wanna talk. So I got in my car, I got to go where he works, just sit in my car, he just wants to get high, he doesn't have any money, I'm feeding him, you know, and every day, every day, he, he just started turning until I finally, that was it, you know, I said, you, you need to get out now, Yeah. you know, because he was starting to, I hate to say the word abuse, but like, almost this is his house and not mine, I want to say. You know what I mean? Yep. Where I don't think I have to correct one person that walks through my door to tell them that this is my house. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I don't think anybody does. You just don't come in like that, you know? Well, He's in my chair. You know, I have my, my shit. I got my little space, my bubble. I don't like people coming into it when I'm, this is where I go. And leave me alone, you know. But he's he's in the living room, and I, of course, Florida, you know, houses are all open floor plans, so you know, there's no really walls divided in anything. So there's my living room, and you got my dining room and the kitchen. It's all open, and he's oh, he's just smoking my weed and watching Doctor Who, and you know, reclining in the chair, and yeah, I'm like, no. Well, and you were doing him a favor no. too, right? It wasn't just like he was your visitor or your guest. You were doing him a favor. Yeah. Well, by the time he got down here and I got his acid job in three days so he can get the hell out because there was no, there was not, I was going to give him maybe a month, okay? Right. And then you need to go. You wanted to be homeless. I don't care. You're down here. You got a job. You can go. I don't want him in my house. That's all I had to say because he started getting real strange and a manip I just wanted to say manipulative you know yeah. I could see Mark coming out in him and I want 
just in certain things, you know what I'm saying? Just that, well, you're going to take me to the library. No, I'm not, you know? Right. No, I'm, I, I don't know who you think I am. I don't know who you would treat like that that would actually do it, but I'm not that person. Right. Okay, so I don't know what your dear old dad told you, but I ain't like that. So let's speak about Teen Challenge, shall we? After 1316 and Paul, it's just another silly little stone in my series to kick. When we first started working on this case, Joe called Mark Sell and got a voicemail. Hi, this is Mark Vincent of Teen Challenge. We Googled it and we found that the organization bills itself as follows. A Christian, 15-month drug and alcohol residential treatment program. We take the worst cases of addiction and exhaust ourselves in equipping them to become productive members of society through the application of biblical principles. Every resident who graduates our program leaves with a GED, if necessary. We offer aftercare planning and development in our last three-month phase to help our residents transition back into society with success. They may incorporate college and trade schooling, on-site transition housing, or our internship program. We exist so that every addict can have hope. Armed with this information, I asked Lieutenant Zimeo in January 2019 if he knew where Mark was. Jimmy Farnham was curious, too, even though I mistakenly said that Mark was helping teens. Teen Challenge Connecticut only helps adults. And where is he still alive? Uh, Yes, he's alive. He's actually joined a, from what we can tell, he's joined and is a leader in, like, a a Christian group that works with at-risk children um, with addiction problems and, you know, criminal backgrounds. Um, Is it Teen Challenge? It's Teen Challenge. Yeah, you know about Teen Challenge? Well, I've seen them around New Haven. Is it New Haven? Uh, yes. In the Hills section of New Haven, I've seen their sign, and I've seen them their vans going around. Oh, you might have crossed paths with them. So they seem they seem to be a pretty upright Christian group. What do you mean by bright? Wait, no, upright. Oh, upright. Like, okay. Like legitimate. In January 2019, Lieutenant DeMeo didn't know where Mark was and ventured a guess. Mark was a strict Christian and a carpenter, so he was probably doing handyman jobs in a church somewhere. So I introduced him to Teen Challenge. Turns out DeMeo's guess was pretty accurate because Mark isn't just a handyman there. He's their general contractor. He's been there since 2003 when he found himself dope sick on the streets of New Haven and needed somewhere to go. Interestingly, that's the same year Mark tried to make his confession, but we'll get back to that. Anyway, from what I've learned, Mark earns a salary heading up teams of men doing renovations on donated property. Most recently, a donated mansion in Middletown. Mark's men, who work for sandwiches at the least and very little money at the most, flip these properties, which Teen Challenge then sells for a profit. As always, Mark's skills as a carpenter get in places, and they love him for it. They just gave him an award. Here's Pastor Rick Welch. Yeah. Hallelujah. We're going to make some noise now. Come on, somebody shout. In the last year, Teen Challenges Pastor Rick Welch has fielded many questions from people, including Donna, Debbie, and Carol, wondering how he could shelter an accused child murderer. Pastor Rick's answer is simple. Either Mark didn't do it, he says, or he did, and he's found forgiveness in the arms of Jesus. Like Mark had told Joe when the two of them first spoke, Mark would see Doreen in glory. 
and who are we to judge? Funnily enough, it was Teen Challenge that inadvertently ended my relationship with the Wallingford police. At the end of April 2019, I headed to Fargo, North Dakota, of all places, for work. Arriving at my hotel, I asked the clerk whether there was room service. There was not. There was a freezer full of Hungry Man meals and Snickers ice cream bars. Do you have HBO, I asked. Not sure, the clerk said. I could call Bob. He stays here a lot and watches a lot of TV. No need, I said. I'll just check. So I grabbed a sandwich and a beer from Lars at the bar and headed up to my room, settled in for the Battle of Winterfell on Game of Thrones, and checked my phone. There, from another sticky beak, was a Facebook profile for Jeff Cifarelli. Jeff is a director at Teen Challenge and brother to Jim Cifarelli, my contact at the Wallingford Police Department. I texted Jim Cifarelli a screenshot and said, Jim, is this something we need to discuss? The response was immediate. No, Jess, it is not something we should discuss. It has nothing to do with the investigation. Leave my personal life out of it. Thank you. My response was just as quick. Jim, respectfully, I fail to see how the fact that your relative works alongside a murder suspect in a case you're handling should be considered your personal life. After that, my relationship with the Wallingford PD was over. So as of right now, I don't know what they think about another little stone that I've been kicking around, that of the child sexual abuse that Mark inflicted upon his two little sisters-in-law, Debbie and Carol. I told you before that I would give you other details of Donna's report to Novia when the two first met on July 7, 1988. It's there, in black and white, although written somewhat strangely. Quote, Donna claimed that Mark had come on to her sisters years ago when they were teenagers. Although the women swear to me that they told the Wallingford police about it back on June 21, 1988, when the police finally let Donna give a statement, now Lieutenant Cifarelli was adamant that the police had not learned about Mark's abuse until at least a year later, when they would start down the road of busting Mark for his illegal gun. That makes no sense, Debbie says. Doreen was gone, she says, and the women were petrified he had done something to her like he used to do to them. Debbie was especially afraid Doreen might have been pregnant. Whatever it was, she said, it had to be something really big for him to take Doreen away from her family for the rest of her life. As for pregnancy... Lieutenant DeMeo scoffed at the notion back at our meeting in March 2019. We don't even know if Doreen had her period, he told Joe and me. We do, I told him. She did. I know because I asked. I don't want to think about a dad diddling his daughter, DeMeo told me. That's gross. Well, I spit back. I don't want to talk about it either. But here we are. And it's disingenuous to think that the police never entertained the abuse angle. Not only was it too big a detail for the women in Doreen's family to forget, but digging through this case, I see it everywhere. Here's an April 5, 1989 letter from a man named Mario Gifredo to a Gerald McCormick at Choate Rosemary Hall, which I found in the police department's raft of so-called dead leads. Gifredo relays that Doreen's aunts had told him Mark had sexually abused them as children, but they never reported it because they were afraid. There is an undated note capturing a call from the women's uncle Peter, the same one who posted the reward for Doreen, asking the police to look into what Mark did to his nieces. Speaking anonymously to Jason Berry for the Record Journal in 2001, both Debbie and Carol were open about what Mark had done to them at night in the large bedroom they shared while their parents worked the third shift. He always bothered us, Debbie said. I'd hear him coming. I couldn't sleep. I remember he used to sneak under the bed and I remember how he used to touch me on top. All he had on was his underwear, and he was on top of me. I think I was the one who stopped it. I don't know how far he would have went. 
Debbie told me the same story years later in January 2019 at Donna's 60th birthday party. Carol's accounts were even more harrowing. Mark would corner her in the bathroom as she dressed to go swimming at the home of another friend of Lori's and George's named June. He would force her to perform and to receive oral sex, Carol said. She was 12 or 13 years old. Debbie eventually told her parents, but Mark tried to bribe her with something like $200 to tell her parents she had lied. That's a lot of money for any kid, especially back in the mid-70s. But Debbie refused. Listeners, it's an unfortunate fact that I have spent many hours talking to Carol and Debbie about their sexual abuse at Mark Vinson's hands. If you have the stomach for it, you can listen to other gut-wrenching details in episode 18 of Sarah Demio's Faded Out Season 2 entitled The History. But there's still more to the story. One more little stone that I want to kick over today. And that's the likelihood that Mark was abusing Doreen herself, given the numerous signs of trauma Sarah and I painfully recounted in Faded Out. That's episodes 19, 20, and 21, entitled The Signs. I will get to many of those details, but the work has already been done, and I point you to it with all the trigger warnings I can muster. For now, let's talk about two specific facets, the photos and the modeling. When the police tossed Lori Vincent's home in July 1989, they found at least two photos of Doreen that are accounted for, and one that isn't, but which I know exists. They are of Doreen in her underwear, and were taken by Mark in the weeks before she went missing. The man himself admits it, but the Wallingford Police Department has, for some reason, guarded the so-called secret photos with their life. When Sarah and I had our meeting with DeMeo in February 1989, I was scared to death the secret news he had promised to share with us would somehow involve me having to look at those photos. When I nervously babbled about photos to DeMeo, he sat back in his chair. No one's ever proven the underwear photos exist, he told me. Weird thing. I didn't say underwear photos. But that wasn't the first time the allegation had come up. Kate knows. She's the friend from Westwoods whose yearbook our girl signed, Have a Great Summer, See You Around, Love Doreen. I spoke to Kate last February at a Starbucks. I mean, I'll, I will never forget just the whole concept of, we were so shocked that she would be an underwear model. Yeah. And yeah. she was like, I've been a model since I was six years old. Like, I've done this my whole life. I've had an agent my whole life. And we just were like, that, we were like, you let people take pictures in your yeah. underwear? Really? Like, no. And she goes, I have, an, I have an agent. I go to New York all the time. I'm being scouted for a modeling agency. And we were just like, okay. True, Kate can't remember who spoke to her, whether it was someone from Westwoods or a private investigator or the Wallingford Police Department. But she did tell someone about the modeling and the agent Doreen had. But whoever she told, told her she was wrong. She used to tell us stories that seemed so outlandish that looking back as an adult, I now, it's very apparent there was something horrible going on. But at the time, you know, we're kids and we just thought, oh, she's just trying to get attention and stuff. So she used to tell us that she was a model, that she had an agent Mm -hmm. and that she went into the city all the time and she had a booking agent and she had been a model for years. Mm -hmm. And when, We told the investigators that, or whoever we told, whoever came to ask us, we were told that it wasn't true, that none of that happened. Now, you said investigators came and spoke to you when you were a kid? I can't remember who spoke to us. Okay. So sometime after she went missing, someone came and talked to me, to some friends. I I can't remember if this is 30 years ago now. Yeah. But I remember telling someone, some adult, about these what Doreen used to tell us, that mm-hmm. she was in, that she was a model. Not only that, but she told us she was an underwear model. Oh, God. 
Yeah. And so we used to say, because we used to have conversations with her over the, like, over the cafeteria table, like, do you let people take pictures of you in your underwear? Like, seriously? I mean, but she always looked so much older. Like, she had beautiful hair. She always had it up in this big clip. She always just had perfect, like, makeup. I mean, she just looked so much older. And she used to tell us she had an agent who took her to New York City all the time for photo shoots. And... When we told whoever it was, we told I don't know. I thought it was police or investigators and maybe someone else. But they said, no, that was never true. The Wallingford Police Department has been adamant with me that it spoke to every one of Dorian's friends and exhausted every source. So they must have spoken to Kate, right? I know they spoke to Tanya. She's the girl who willed Doreen her sunglasses back in that 1988 yearbook from Parkview, the school Doreen had left before she found herself at Westwoods with Kate. Back on July 8, 1989, more than a year after Doreen had been gone, and as the police were ramping up the investigation, the Wallingford cops called Tanya. She told them she'd had no contact with her friends since December 1987, when Mark had pulled her out of school. This had saddened Tanya, who was a senior to Doreen's seventh grader and loved her like a little sister. Sisters confide things to each other, and Doreen complained to Tanya that her father and stepmother paid little attention to her, focusing instead on little Paul and Sarah. Doreen was a very straight girl, Tanya said. She did not hang out with the wrong crowd. And although Tanya called Doreen the perfect girl, she did note that her friend had a temper and could be aggressive. Tanya told the police she thought she had writing from Doreen in her yearbook and that she would look for it. But Doreen was never there to finish the 1988 year at Parkview. Tanya also told the cops that one day back in July 1988, her mother had gotten a strange call. It sounded like it was coming from a public phone in a big place, like a bus station. Is Tanya in, the caller asked. No, Tanya's mother said. She's next door, and I can grab her if you want me to. Otherwise, she'll be home at 3. That's fine, the caller said. I'll call back at 3. Is there a name I can give her, Tanya's mother asked. My name is Dor, the caller said. Tanya's mother told the police she had a sixth sense. She could tell there was something wrong with the caller and that the caller needed help. But the call ended. Tanya and her mother were worried that Doreen was out there and that she had run out of money. She didn't have a lot, Tanya said. Modeling was all Doreen ever talked about, like Alyssa Milano and Who's the Boss. Like I've said before, and I know it's terrible, but I don't think Doreen was alive to make that phone call in July 1988. And I think the police knew that too. Because over six years later, on November 8, 1994, a New Jersey cop looking into a Doreen lookalike in a Ruby Tuesday wrote a memo declaring that lead dead. Simply put, the waitress was a girl named Danielle not Doreen. But the Jersey detective had also spoken to Wallingford police detective Carrie Kuhn, and Kuhn had relayed the following. The suspicious circumstances in which the above-referred person became a missing individual are that she is believed to be dead, possibly killed by her natural father, who was a known criminal in their area, and with whom she was last living and seen prior to her disappearance. And as for Detective Kuhn, he was fired by the Wallingford Police Department three years later, after the Meriden police caught him soliciting a sex worker and driving her back and forth to a crack house. During his tenure, Detective Kuhn had racked up 25 written warnings and five suspensions for misconduct, including neglect of duty. The Meriden police declined to press charges, letting Wallingford handle Kuhn in-house. It's not the type of attention I like to draw to the police department, PD spokesman Thomas Curran told the Record Journal. All of our officers are very conscientious, and in that sense, it's an embarrassment to them. Chief Dortensio was adamant that the public should be proud of the vast number of officers in the department who are hardworking, ethical individuals. 
We still employ people from the human race, Dortenzio said. The public loses sight of that. People are fallible. Look, I know the Wallingford Police Department isn't perfect, but I still want their help in solving this case despite all the problems we've had. Yes, despite our obsession, they still need to work and give to charity. And people are fallible, but there are still some hard questions about their work that they need to answer. And I reject their notion that I am kicking over silly little stones. They are anything but. They are the abuse and sadness and grief that has haunted the lives of the people Doreen left behind. This work is hard and it is dark, but it's important. And it has to be done. So I'm going to keep kicking. And I implore the Wallingford Police Department to join me. Because no matter what missteps were made, and no matter who feels foolish, think back to our meeting in March 2019 when you told me we had one shared goal. Remember? We're looking for the murderer. Come here, George. Let God have the